Welcome back, brethren. Today we will continue our studies in the epistle to Timothy, first and second epistle to Timothy, with Titus sandwiched in between. Our study is focused, again, on what a pastor, a true shepherd of the Lord Jesus Christ, should teach and, and how he should act in that capacity. You know, today we've been talking about uh, so many things, but one thing that comes to my mind is the fact that as we reviewed last time when we were together, there's so many out there that seem to have lost their way, seem to have lost uh, direction, if you will, on what they're actually to do. You know, Christ himself calls the pastor. Christ himself ordains the pastor. Christ himself enables the pastor, as we saw last week, to to speak and to act in that capacity. I want to read a passage before we start out our study today, brethren, from Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 11. I think it's very important. It said, And he himself, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, he himself gave some to the apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Listen to this, brethren, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, even Christ. Now, brethren, that's a, uh, uh, admonishing the church that Christ, after he ascended, he gave gifted men to the church, enabling him, those men to perform his desire that we would equip, that we would raise up men and women in the church of God that would be taught correctly, that they would no more be tossed true and fro with every wind of doctrine. In other words, brethren, they would see a wolf on the horizon and they would recognize it instantly. There are so many things today where men are lacking discernment People in the church of Jesus Christ are lacking discernment. They will follow any uh, blind guide, if you will. And I want to start off by also saying that last week we talked about Acts 20. I want to just touch on that briefly, brethren, before we get into our study. By the way, these studies are for the man that is thinking or is in the ministry. We want to give examples of biblical Advice, if you will, biblical admonition for the equipping of the saints, for the biblical pastor overseer. You know, Paul, you remember in Acts 20, when he was on his way to Jerusalem, and eventually on his way to Rome, where he would lose his life, he's talking to the Ephesian elders. And as he was talking to them, you can almost see his his dire warning, his almost... uh, unavoidable anxiety, if you will, 
to tell these men and remind them that it's not only God that purchased the church with his own blood, but he also tells them that after his departure, savage wolves will come in among them, not sparing the flock. And he says this, he says, Even from amongst your own selves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. You know, the true shepherd, the pastor, will draw disciples to Jesus Christ. They will make disciples of Jesus Christ, not after themselves, not after their agenda, not after their own doctrine, but after the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that the church has been warned by not only the, the prophets warned highly, Moses warned of these people coming. Isaiah warned of these people. Jeremiah warned of these people. Ezekiel warned of these people, these false shepherds that will come in and fleece the flock, not feeding the sheep, but feeding themselves and leave the sheep bleeding and wounded and open in the open field, so to speak, being ravaged by the beasts of the field. That's a graphic picture that Ezekiel, the prophet, gives of these false shepherds. We want to quit men. God calls men to the ministry, men that are full of integrity, men that have been called by Jesus Christ himself, men that have crossed that line, so to speak, and in themselves, their innermost being says, I have no other rivals. I have determined I will know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I will guard, I will guide by not only word, the powerful word of God, but by example. This is what the pastor is called to do. So after starting with that, brethren, let's get in looking at, at our study today. Last time we were together, we looked at the first chapter of 1 Timothy. And I just want to hit on the, the, the 19th verse here real quick. Again, 1 Timothy 1.19 says, Having faith and a good conscience, by which some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Now that's an interesting uh, way that Paul puts that. Having faith and a good conscience, we looked at the fact that good teaching the Word of God, solid doctrine, will produce solid biblical faith. It will produce a very solid good conscience, and it will it will produce unwavering or unflinching devotion to Christ Himself. These men have suffered shipwreck. You know, the Amplified puts this verse 19 this way, keeping fast hold on faith, that leaning of the entire human personality on God in absolute trust and confidence, and a good, clear conscience. By rejecting and thrusting from them their conscience, some individuals have made shipwreck of their faith. William MacDonald writes this about being shipwrecked. He says that their Christian life had started out like a gallant ship putting out to sea. But instead of returning to port with banners waving and a full cargo, they had floundered on the rocks and brought shame on themselves and their testimony. You know, brethren, a good conscience is something that, that God is pleased with. It's something that we can rest in, knowing that we have have fulfilled by the power of the Holy Spirit His purpose in our life. 
you know, I'm reminded of the late Donald Gray Barnhouse uh, admonishing a, a mother of a young child who wanted to be a pastor and a great teacher like Dr. Barnhouse. And he looked at the mother again and he said, I have one bit of advice for you. If Johnny, when he grows up, could be anything else in his life, if he could be satisfied with anything else in his life, whether it be a banker, a policeman, fireman, what have you, then he probably has not been called into the ministry. God calls those that are willing to pick up the cross, go outside the camp, if you will, and bear his reproach for the sake of those that will inherit eternal life. Brethren, that's a shepherd, a true communicator of God's word. I want to start again in the second chapter today, looking at our reasons and our biblical understanding of a true shepherd. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. You know, as we spoke about last time, 50 years ago, I think that would be a little bit hard-pressed to be talking about admonishing, teaching, laced, lacing your teaching, if you will, with the understanding that Christ is God. Christ is our Savior. Christ is the one that created this universe. You know, years ago, like I said, it would have been a, more of a redundant statement, but there are so many false teachings and wolves out there that want to deny Christ of either his deity as being fully God, or they want to deny him as being fully man. This teaching, my brethren, is blasphemy. Jesus Christ was fully God, and yet he was also fully man. Mark well, John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1, for example, all in these first chapters we see clearly that Jesus Christ is none other than the creator of the universe, but he is also our redeemer. Having a good conscience, praying, lifting up for prayers and supplications. In verse 3 it says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. He says in verse 4, Who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Think about this, brethren. The knowledge of the truth. In these three passages, brethren, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, again, we see the clear understanding of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, verse 4, he says, Who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, God desires men to be saved. Just listen to these passages from Isaiah 45, John 7, and Revelation 22. It is a amazing statement. God says, look unto me, all 
the ends of the earth and be ye saved. For I am God and there is none else. And Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man, any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. You know, God is a God who desires that all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God is not a God of wickedness. He doesn't desire some to go to hell and others to be saved. He doesn't predestine some for salvation and some for hell. He knows the end from the beginning. His foreknowledge is such that he knows all, the end from the beginning. You know, we trust that great understanding of prophecy, for example. You know, Isaiah chapter 42 and chapter 46, you know, God specifically says that I tell you the end from the beginning, that you know that I am he. We can tell the word of God is the word of God because of fulfilled prophecy. God says, I will tell you that this is my word because I'll tell you things before they happen, so that we come when it comes to happen, you will know that this is my word. Jesus used that language many times. Yet we trust the word of God to have that freedom. And yet there are some out there today, brethren, that say that, nope, some are destined to hell and some are destined to heaven. No, my friends. God desires that all men would be saved. Remember our great verse in Isaiah, Look ye unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. The last chapter of the the Bible, the Word of God, Revelation 22, remember? If any man thirst. And then we also hear that cry again from that last chapter, if, Let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. God gives the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as an, a gift to all who would receive it. All who would receive the gift of eternal life. The forgiveness of sins that Christ offers. He desires that all men to be saved. Jesus says, I didn't come into the world to be served. He says, I came into the world to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. You know, there are those that think that that some are destined to hell. They say, well, Jesus Christ, his sacrifice was only effectious for the elect. Know it, brethren, it's effective for everybody that would receive it, that would come to the knowledge of the truth. When people stumble into a crisis eternally, my friends, they are stumbling over the cross of Jesus Christ. For he died and he said, it is finished. And that veil of the temple, brethren, was torn, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom, signifying that God had opened the way to himself for whosoever will come to God in his way, through his front door, the Lord Jesus Christ. Men have fallen away today, brethren, that have entered the pastorate, that have come out of these apostate seminaries, these schools that have different understandings, more modern understandings, they say. There's a movement out now that say, these are 2,000-year-old documents. We need something fresh. We need some new revelation. 
Well, brethren, this new revelation sweeping the land is taking away the Lord Jesus Christ only sacrifice on the cross that will save you and I. And God beckons that we come to the cross, that we see Christ bleeding and suffering and paying the just penalty for our sins. And by believing in him, God is satisfied with Christ dying in our place. This is the message of the gospel. Because he says again, brethren, in verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Look at verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Listen, brethren, that's it. There is one mediator, and it is not the Pope, it is not the church, it is not good works, it is not how well we keep the law, it is not more good deeds outweigh the bad deeds. There is one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. He bridged the gap. He stood in between sinful man and a holy God, and he paid the penalty for man's sins. And God raised him from the dead, and all who had put their trust in him are saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, that means you, I, or Grandma Joan, comes to the Father but by him. One meteor. There are not many ways. There are not a better way. Jesus is not just the best way. Jesus is the only way, brethren. What a solid foundation. We have Christ. There's no other foundation that can be laid but that which is already laid, the Lord Jesus Christ, one mediator. That brings persecution. That brings men who are enraged. But we know that that is absolute love. God saw man in a hopeless condition, a lost condition that will bring men in that lost, hopeless condition to stand before him one day and have to give an account for the sin that they have. They sinned in front of a holy God. They spit in his face. They went days, years, and a life without thinking of him, going their own way, not minding him. And then they will be banished into a crisis eternity. They didn't want him in this life. So they're banished to the next life without him. But for us who desire that men would be saved, there is no other name given amongst men under heaven by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. So this, brethren, is a mainstay of the solid preaching man of God who would understand the truth of the scripture. He says, Paul says, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. He says, I'm a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. He says, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without doubting and without wrath. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now I know, brethren, as we're entering into this 
section right here. This is a very divisive section for a lot of people. There's a lot of pastors out there, a lot of communicators of the Word of God that will much rather skip this section than to go through it. But we must preach the Word. We must teach the Word line by line, precept by precept, just as God had written it. There is a reason for everything God does. There is an order for everything God does. And the pastor, the overseer, realizes that God has order in the church for our good, for our edification, and for his glory. Let's look at that for a little bit, brethren, before we, we close out um, our session today. What does he mean when he talks about women? Women adorning themselves in modest apparel, in moderation, not with braided hair, not with costly pearls and clothing and all this stuff. But he says, but which is proper for women professing godliness. I'm in verse 10 now of chapter 2. Professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Verse 15, Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So let's look at that for a little bit, brethren. And then we'll kind of uh, look at this a little bit and then we'll go back up and hit a few more points before I close out our session today. I don't want this to be just a regular line-by-line -line study in these epistles, but that we look practically at, at what the Word of God says about the man who would be in the pulpit, a man who would be called to oversee people, a man who is held responsible for teaching the Word of God. We see all kinds of ammunition in the Word of God. Let me just read a few of them to you, brethren, and then we can go from there. They're not. There are warnings for our protection, warnings for our good. God does nothing to scare us. God does nothing to put us down. He only commends what he writes. Remember how James in chapter 3, verse 1 said, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall incur or receive a stricter judgment. God takes his word seriously. And the man of God who has, has put his hands to the plow and doesn't look back, who has died with Christ and he regards himself as dead, but alive in Jesus Christ, those are the men that God can work with. Breaks him down, fashions him in his Christ. Listen to these other things, brethren. I want to leave you with these two until, and then we'll get back into our study. The seriousness of it, we saw James chapter 3. But I have a couple more in Hebrews chapter 13, and we'll just go over real quick. The first one in Hebrews 13, 7, it says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. The second one I want to bring out is also in Hebrews 13, but it's in verse 17. So we have Hebrews 13, verse 7. And then we have verse 17, which says, Obey those who rule over you, 
and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Brethren, we see that the man of God holds that would teach the word, that would shepherd uh, people, that would raise up disciples, that would teach them and admonish them not to be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, that would be responsible, that God would use to mature individuals. It's a very, very serious matter. As we get to this last part of chapter 2, before we go back up to uh, 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 verses 5 and 6 real quick, and I'll end with those. But women, women in the church, what's their roles? What's their... um, what is their, their role in the church? Why is it such a big controversy today? Well, I believe a couple of reasons. Number one, I remember years ago, my wife and I going to a, a dinner and uh, ended up being four or five couples uh, sitting before us and just hammering us with all kinds of questions and this and that, which I love. And sure enough, I knew this was coming at the end. The last one was, what do I think about women in the church? Well, It's not what I think about women in the church. It's what the Word of God teaches about the women in the church. First of all, we see way back in Genesis, remember in chapter 3, when we see that Satan enters in the garden through a serpent. We see him talking to Eve. And remember how Adam was instructed, God told Adam you could eat of any tree in the garden, but this one tree in the midst you shall not eat of. Because once you do, you will die. That's a direct understanding from the Lord. So we see when Satan comes in, what does she do? Satan goes right to the woman and says, Has God really said from none of these trees you can eat? So right away we see him mixing up the truth. Mixing up the truth. We have a precedent there, brethren. Women are not weaker morally. Women are not weaker in personage. Women are made delicately. Women are made to be under the protection and the guidance spiritually, physically, and emotionally of the man. Satan knows this, so Satan goes after women. It's much like the cults today. A lot of them started out early in the 50s and 60s, because it was traditionally that most men went to work and the women stayed home. They would go out during the day because they knew, Satan knows, the men, the protector, again, the emotional, the spiritual, and the physical protector of the home was a way at work. And that's what Satan does. He goes in and he tempts. So we need to understand right away that this is not a putting down of women this is actually holding women in the highest regard because woman was made for man and the man for the woman. And we'll get to the man in a minute. But we need to understand this. You know, in verse 10, when it says, women are, are to be proper and professing godliness with good works. They are not to draw attention to themselves, but their good works will draw attention to Christ. And if we look, if we go down and read, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. You know, we must learn about the context. 
okay, of, of the situation going on. The woman gets her nourishment spiritually and emotionally from the man. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission means that we are both to be reverent. The man in reverence for understanding the word of God, the man in obedience, being the head of the woman, the spiritual head, and feeding his wife, and the woman being in silence and getting fed, if you will, getting nourished, if you will, spiritually by her husband. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. You women out there are beautiful and precious, not only in the sight of God, but they will be beautiful and precious in the sight of the godly husband. Let's go on. So verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Ooh, here's what we go here. We start realizing, people start saying, okay, a woman can't teach. And there has been more controversy, I think, over so much about a woman is not able to teach. Well, let's look at the Word of God and let's try to come to a little bit better understanding, brethren. As upcoming pastors, as pastors that are desiring to teach the Word, as pastors that are desiring to be true to the Word, let's look at this for a little bit. First of all, in Acts chapter 18, there's a beautiful illustration of how Priscilla and Aquila ran into Apollos. Remember that? It's in Acts chapter 18. And the scripture says that Apollos was an elegant man, mighty in the scriptures, boldly declaring Jesus in the synagogue. And yet he only knew the baptism of John. So we see that Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and explained the word of God more accurately. You also have, in the book of Acts, you have Philip that has his daughters as prophetesses. You also have times of uh, Timothy, we'll get to here um, as we progress in our studies, was taught and brought up and nourished by his, his, uh, his mother and his grandmother. Remember Lois and Eunice? I could go on, brethren, with examples of how godly women have enriched lives. This is not what we're talking about here. Okay? The emphasis here is on authoritative, public teaching in the church for which God called men that are reserved with this precious truth and they're entrusted with this commodity. The responsibility of the authority and the leadership and the shepherding, if you will, of the church was laid upon the man and not the woman. So we see that the authority the authority is what we're looking at here. The authority, the ruling authority that God has invested in men should not be invested in women. Women have their proper place. I have been greatly uh, enriched and sharpened by the counsel of my wife. Is she the authority of my home? No. I have heard my wife and other women richly expound the word of God. Does that mean she takes authority and direction over the church? No. It is always under the authority of the man. Even still, there are those that disagree. And But we must understand that the word of God is a whole. You can't take 
bits and pieces out and make a doctrine out of it. Well, listen to this, brethren. After it says that in verse 12 about I do not permit a woman to teach, look at verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Evolution cannot create order. Okay, this was an this was order of creation. The man first, then Eve, and God created it that way. Very interesting because in both accounts we've talked back to the. Uh, this is the second time we've gone back to Genesis, chapter three in this brief study. God has order. God has gives responsibility to men. Let me preface this whole thing again, lest we get boggled down with, with different things. Three things, my brethren, that you need to understand. Brethren, again, we need to understand that our role as men of God, especially teaching about women in the rightful place, with the, the place the word gives them, of highest honor. Dr. Barnhouse said this about women in one, in one place in his ministry, that the woman is like the hearth, that the man who comes out of the coldness of the world may warm himself by. The great communicator, the good communicator, the pastor, the good shepherd of the flock will always communicate that women have a very high honor. Just read Proverbs 31, that the husband rises and calls her blessed. Her worth is far above all rubies. Proverbs 31 gives an eloquent description, brethren, of what the woman is in the sight of God. Very, very precious. Very uh very much of a perfect role, if you will, as far as not only the church, but the woman herself. Listen to some of these things that I'm taking out of Proverbs 31. Who can find a virtuous wife? Her worth is far above all rubies. And the husband, the heart of her husband does safely trust in her. She girds herself with strength. She makes her, she... Her husband is known in the gates. In other words, like Billy Graham said many, many years ago, behind every powerful man and the ministry that the man runs is a woman that is a praying wife, that is a supportive wife, that is a wife that knows her place within that beautiful setting. Uh, her children rise up again and call her blessed. Her husband also. It says, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised more than charm and more than beauty. The reason why I bring that up, brethren, is because we must balance the word of God with what it says about women. Many ministries have run into quarrels and fights, and even some that I've known, brethren, that have split over the women issue in the church. Women were meant, never meant to have authority and to usurp authority in the church, which is the ground and pillar for the truth. We're going to get, when we get into chapter 3, brethren, we're going to see uh, the office of an overseer, qualifications, um, the same thing as a deacon. So we understand that women have a very 
very important role, not only in the church and in a marriage, but having authority and being the overseer, the shepherd, the guardian of the flock is not one of them. So we must understand that. I will leave this discussion today, brethren, on this matter with you men. You men want to be stand-up men and, and, and be an example to your wife, an example of Jesus Christ. We must teach these things, my fellow pastors. Number one, a man is responsible for being a physical protector of the wife. Number two, he is responsible for being the spiritual head and feeder of the wife. And number three, brethren, he is responsible for being the emotional protector of the marriage. Physically, spiritually, emotionally. When we set those things in order, when we see that the order of the church is that God has placed the responsibility of a leadership, guidance, managing, overseeing to the man, we start seeing things falling into place. Women have a different role than men, as it should be. Brethren, I think that uh, understanding of the scriptures will even out even the deepest quarrel over this subject. I want to end today, and I hope it's been edifying to you. I want to end today speaking back up into verses 5, 6, and 7. Remember we talked about how God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one meter between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He was a substitution, brethren. The just for the unjust, as Peter would say, that he might bring us to God. Substitution. The innocent for the guilty. Jesus Christ was my innocent substitute who knew no sin, who was spotless, who was without sin. He went to the cross, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, who knew no sin, he became sin, that I might become the righteousness of God in him. Substitution. I want to leave you with this true story to think about these things. Maybe it might put substitution, one mediator, who gave himself a ransom for all. Maybe this story might help simplify that. During a war between Britain and France, men were conscripted into the French army by a kind of lottery system. When someone's name was drawn, he had to go off to battle. On one occasion, the authorities came to a certain man and told him he was among those who had been chosen. He refused to go, saying, I was shot and killed two years ago. At first, the officials questioned his sanity, but he insisted that he was that was indeed the case. He claimed that the military records would show that he had been killed in action. How can that be, they questioned. You are alive now. He explained, he explained that when his name came up first, a close friend of his said to him, You have a large family. But I am not married, and nobody is dependent upon me. I'll take your name and address and go in your place. And that is indeed what the record showed. 
This rather unusual case was referred to Napoleon Bonaparte, who de decided that the country had no legal claim on that man. He was free. He had died in the person of another. Brethren, the scripture says that we had died in Jesus Christ. We are no longer alive. We've died with him who died in our place. And we rose with him from the dead. And we are free. We're identified with another now. We're identified with the one, the only one, who could pay the price for our sin. You see how imperative it is to to teach the fact that Jesus Christ is the only one who could pay the price for our sin. Nothing else. It is Jesus Christ, period. One mediator, one ransom, and he paid it. We need men of God who will proclaim these truths against the onslaught of falsity the onslaught of false doctrine out there, whether it would be Calvinism or, or whether it be universalism. One says that some are destined to heaven and some are destined to hell. The other one, universalism, says all will be saved. But the Bible says that the free gift is offered to all who have placed their trust in Christ. The forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal Life is in Christ and no other. No other. Can God count on you today, you who are contemplating the ministry, you are contemplating, who are standing up and proclaiming these wonderful truths? One who is unflinching with the world tied. One who refuses to stand for anything less. Than the truth. For the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. I hope these studies today have encouraged you, have fed you, and have nourished you with some of the truths. Brethren, we're just scratching the surface. We have a long way to go, and I'm looking forward to it. So until next time, when we get into chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, I pray that you would search the scriptures to not only see if these things are so, but to search the scriptures for your own edification. We don't want to be deceived. We want to know the scriptures. We want to get into the word of God and let the word of God get into you. And by doing that, brethren, we will have a rich well of defense for what the Holy Spirit can raise up in time of need. So I bid you farewell. God bless you, brethren. Until next time. With him, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He's going to descend from heavens with a shout, with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet them in the clouds, to meet Him. We will always be with the Lord. Can you imagine that, brethren? In a moment, twinkling of an eye. They say that word twinkling of an eye, what Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 
Scientists say that where twinkling an eye cannot even be measured on the point of time. Thousands and thousands of a microsecond is a twinkling of an eye. We will be caught up to meet with them. Are you ready? Are you going to a church? Are you listening to those that are preaching the word of God? That are giving you the word of God and the word of God alone? That are standing on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word? Because there are some brethren that aren't. They're not only false teachers that are out there, but there are teachers that are trying to get your money, trying to get your attention. You know, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'll close with this. Read that second, that 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians real close, brethren. We will see that there's an enemy out there, Satan himself, that is launching false teachers, embodying false teachers that they will lie about the truth of God. Is Jesus Christ really coming back, they say? Yes, he's coming back. But I'll end this epistle, or I should say the first chapter of First Timothy. Paul says in verse 20, Of whom are Hamanias and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. As we go on in this epistle, we will see the dangers not only of Wrong understanding, the popular teaching today, for example, is there is more one way. There is more than one way to God. We will see in the preceding chapters how the man of God absolutely rejects that because the Bible says emphatically there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. We'll see how Jesus stood on on the solid eternal Word of God, making him the only way to God the only source of salvation. These things we will be sure when Christ comes back, we will, we will have to give an account, you that are pastors, you that are thinking about teaching the Word of God. Yes, we will be held in strict accountability. James says in James 3.1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing, knowing that we will have a stricter accountability or stricter judgment. So yes, it's a serious matter, but yet I can see of no other higher calling to those that are truly called to teach God's word. And my brethren, I leave you with that today. I hope this finds you well. I hope this finds you searching your own heart and rejoicing in the fact that if God called you into the ministry, God called you to teach his word, my brethren, there is no other higher calling than this world can afford. And Father, I thank you for the time that we have. I pray that you remove the rough edges that I put there and that this first chapter, 1 Timothy, would be our introduction into the rest of the epistle, the second epistle of Timothy and Titus, that we'd see what a true man of God should teach and how he should lead the church of God, which is the ground and pillar of the truth. And I ask, Lord, that you would strengthen those that are out there and listening today that they would realize that there is no greater calling than to be faithful, to be true to the Word of God. And I ask this for the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Till next time, brethren, farewell. That will bring him to a more and more closer stature with, with Christ as far as intimacy. He is missing the very thing. And that thing is love. God is love. Verse 8, again.
He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You know, he says in verse 7 that to, to let us love one another. For love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Or say it again, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. These, I believe in my own life I have not ever found a more satisfactory definition, theological explanation of these verses. They speak for themselves. I can tell all kinds of things. How can I speak? other than what the scripture plainly says. Verse 8 again, He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. It says in verse 9, in this, in this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Think of verse 10. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. And how do you love us? He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. One of the greatest verses, I, I think, that could be anywhere to show that God meant what He said and said what He meant is in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Listen to this wonderful declaration. God demonstrates His love towards us. I love that. I want to see action. I don't want to see words. That's one thing I loved about my father. Man, a few words, but... Everything he did, he demonstrated, and I, I love that. I want that in my own life. Don't tell me something unless you're going to do it. You know, it's not like God somewhere had a big thing in the sky said, God, I love you, God, and then just left the world alone. No, but God demonstrated the fact that how much he loved us. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and while we were still, or the King James says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is one reason, one reason alone, Jesus Christ came to this earth, and that was to atone for sin, to bring man back to God. That is it. And any other false prophet will tell you anything else. He came to be a good teacher. We talked about this before. He came to be a good teacher, although he was. He came to bring morals, although he did. He came to being a good example. All we got to do is get back to the golden rule, and Jesus showed us how to do it. That is false doctrine. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, I'm chief. The great apostle Paul, oh yeah, the more we know about Christ and the more we study his word, the more we realize what we've been saved from. Remember? I think it's in Luke 12 or Luke, Luke 8, somewhere around there. Remember when the, my favorite story, the prostitute that came into to Jesus. Jesus was invited, you know, to the religious leader's home for lunch. And, and uh, this lady comes in there and they were all aghast, you know, and and she was constantly weeping and, and washing his feet. Remember that story? That says it all, folks. They're all, if this man was really prophet, he would know who that was. Simon, I got something to say to you. You know, say I'm a teacher because he was important, right? The master wants to talk to me. So he gave him the story about debt. One owed a small debt. The other owed a big debt. And both of them, Master, forgave both of them. Which is going to love them more? Well, obviously, the one that, that you know, that forgave the, the masterful amount of debt. And he says, you know what? You see this? I know who she is. We all do. So Jeff Grant paraphrased. She loves much because she is common. She understands she's been forgiven 
a boatload of sin. And by that very nature, she loves much. Ah, love. There we go. Back in 1 John 4.10, and again, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. And I will end at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Propitiation. Talked about that before. It was a propitiated sacrifice. What that means is that he laid down a sacrifice, the only sacrifice that God will accept on your and mine's behalf. There is only one way to God. There is only one sacrifice that will get us there. And Jesus Christ laid it down and paid it to the full. And God was pleased that Christ died in your place by raising him from the dead. And by believing in that, you are born from above. Your sins are forgiven you. We overcame them by the blood of the Lamb. By that very nature, we are born again by the very love that God had for me by sending Christ in my place. That love is now residing within me. (laughs) How can we tell the difference between one who knows God and one does. How can we have a surety in our hearts that we're born again? The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What does the Spirit always do? Point us to Christ. Point us to Christ. Jesus said he loved his own and he loved them to the end. Wow. God always has his remnant, his body. And they will walk in in love. And I believe that there's been so much ridicule of the Christian church uh, in the, the, well, you know, as I've said before, you know, I've been a Christian for a while. Just in the three decades that I've known Christ, I've seen such a, a shift in things. You know, once that was things that were solid now aren't solid, you know. Uh, churches that used to be known for their uh, their faith and their standing on the rock are now being shifted and now don't teach the things they used to. But that's no cause for alarm for us, for you and I, because we know that God, we are safe in Him. We don't want that Elijah syndrome, you know, where he goes into the cave and he says, man, I, I'm alone that's left. That's now. I have, you know, reserved for me those that have not bowed the knee to anything else. So, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And I'll end with this statement Jesus said in John 10 10. The thief only comes to kill still, and destroy. But I have come that you might not only have life, but that you might have it abundantly, joyously. The one that knows Christ may sound alarming, may be watching on the wall. You read about, uh, you know, Jeremiah, especially Ezekiel. They sent him as a watchman on the wall. And God said, you know, if, if you see that, we see Ezekiel chapter 3 and verses 33, or chapter 33 and elsewhere, 
You know, if you see the, if you hear the sound of the trumpet, the warning, and you give faithful warning, and men turn, great. If they don't turn, the blood's on their own hands. But if you hear the warning, or you see the warning, and you hear the trumpet, and you don't warn them, their blood is on your head. And we don't have time to turn there because I said we were done. But you look in Acts chapter 20, and that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesian elders. He says, I've taught, taught you nothing but things that will be proffered you. I am innocent of the blood of all men. And that is what he means there. He's innocent of the blood of all men. He's heard the trumpet. He sees the, the, the thing come, the judgment coming and the warning coming. And he is sound. He pleaded day and night for three years with tears. The whole counsel of God. He says, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. And yet, we know Paul was, was, well, he wrote Philippians, and some call that the epistle of joy. But but, did that guy have joy? Absolutely. Did Peter have joy? Absolutely. He wrote about the joy inexpressible and full of glory. Did John have joy? Oh, yeah. It was serious. And I, I promise you I will end with this. One of my favorite sayings or writings of Peter's writing. But the end, this is 1 Peter 4, 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be silly. Hey, and therefore, party with Jesus. No. He says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful unto prayers. But how does he close that? Listen to this next verse. But above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love covers a multitude of sins. Brethren, there's more to this Christian life than just knowing doctrine and It's knowing Him. And it's understanding that He is so desirous to make Himself known. That's how John opens up his first epistle about fellowship. You have seen and heard and declared to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and His Son. He said, these things we write to you that so that your joy may be full. We need to be serious about these times and about what we say and what we do. Pray, you want to pray, please. Lord God, we thank you for your word that you've spoken today. We want to be serious and, and know you, Lord. And we ask that you, you reveal yourselves through the, the word. And we ask that we, you put it in our hearts for us to get in the word every day. Not just at Bible study or at church, Lord. 
but have fellowship with you every single day. Only as a Jew. Go before us throughout our week, throughout our day, and prepare the way for us, Lord. And give us the will to do your will. In the name of Jesus' name. Amen. Of this. He's describing a man who's been born again that as he goes to the Oriental bathhouse, as he takes a bath, he's cleansed from all unrighteousness, and yet when he's walking back to the house, his feet will acquire defilement, and thus wash his feet. But he himself is clean from all that the law could say or accuse him. And it's beautiful, because that's what we are. And when we have defilement, we confess our sins to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's wise, he's just, because he took the condemnation himself. He fulfilled every bit of the law for you and I. And he also took the condemnation and the judgment for the breaking of that law for you and I. So he's just. Listen to these words. If we confess our sins, our defilement, he is faithful and just, forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Wow. Keep on sinning. Wow. We can't because we've been born of God. Nor do you need to. You know? That's what separates biblical Christianity from all the other religions in the world. And I only say religion as far as Christianity is just by means of comparison. By no means is the Bible taught favorably without religion. Religion is always the outward show. We as baptism and one baptized in the body, we show the world what has already happened and taken place on the inside. That's the meaning of baptism. So when you go baptize in the river wherever you get, you show the world. When I was baptized in Corleone Bay in North Lake Tahoe, I was signifying to the world and to my parents, something has happened to me. I believe this gospel. I believe this word of God. My sins have been, I've been forgiven. That Jesus Christ is now my Lord. I'm not my Lord anymore. I walked to a different drumbeat and that's to him. And I've never looked back. And I'm thankful I haven't. Because Paul says that, you know, you can run a race. And if you run it in such a way, there's a, there's a reward, and there's a crown waiting for you. And I want that crown, and I want that reward. I want to see my Lord. I'm expecting to see him. I want to see him. I can't wait to see him. Because I know that when I see him, I will be with him forever. I just want to end these verses, probably for my own sake. Because right now, folks, I think that is a time for comfort. I think that, you know, you can read these verses and you can look at sin so much, you can tend to get, uh, feel like you've getting pummeled with things. And it's not the fact that we pummel because somebody's life might not be as righteous as mine. But we admonish these things so that we might see that the Lord desires that we have nothing in the way of Him. You know? We even say it in our wedding vows. You forsake all others. You know, I remember talking, you know, we did Jan and Joe's wedding. You know, you, are you willing to forsake all others? Okay. What does that mean? Well, there's not too many. There's, there are people out there, but there, most people don't actually commit the physical adultery maybe on the wife, but they sure do in so many other ways. And if that's true in the physical realm of 
of relationships down here, it's more, it's more uh, abundant with our Christian life. There are so many things. The devil and everything is clamoring for our attention. The flesh wears its ugly head when you don't think it will. The moment you think you've got everything under control, here it comes. Look out. The moment you think you've been having a pretty good day, man, and you've talked to a couple of people about Christ, one might have given his life for Christ, and you're relishing in the, in the glow of it, watch out. You know, let's make up our mind now. So when it comes, you're dealing with it. I am my beloved's and my beloved's mine. That's, that's my wife and I's verse out of uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 7. But listen to this. I'm going to leave you with the, with the first six verses of, of the discourse in John 14. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or many rooms or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. He's going and preparing a place for you, for me, individually. You know, as a corporate part of his body, he loves you. He's going to tailor this for you. I believe this with all my heart. Because my God's like that. He loves us individually. He's tailoring a place for you, exactly what you want. You know, people down here, they want to find the perfect house. And, you know, I mean, we've been selling our house for almost a year now. I know. I mean, for all kinds of things. Oh, you know, it's great, but we want this. Oh, it's great. He is tailoring something, I believe, with all my heart, that is going to just dazzle us for eternity. I can't wait to see that. He loves you. And, and we flirt with sin? In my Father's house, are, again, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That's the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants you with Him. And we're going we're gonna to forsake that and sin? We're going to forsake that and, and entertain uh, pride and, and, and everything else? Is it tough? Hey, did anybody say the Christian life was going to be easy? Paul says, I die daily. So he's going to go prepare this fantastic place. You know, I don't have to worry about, well, hey, you know, is it going to be something I want? It will be exactly what I was designed to love and to dwell in, because that's who God is. And if I go and prepare a place for you again, he says, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know, and where I, I go, you know, the way you know. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where the way you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus takes it from the material to the spiritual. Life. Life is not this. Life is Him. We don't know where you're going to go. Leave us a map or something. You know, let us know. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. 
12. Lord, um, the Lord has shown me the last, well, when I really understood where we're going, and the time is short for, for us here, but I love you guys, and that's my heart. That's the heart of the Lord, and I, I, I would be you know, I used to tell my sons, if you don't tell somebody the truth, you're not really being a truthful friend to them. And there's so much more to this life than just what meets the eye. You know, they say that those that are suffer great loss, suffer problems in their life. I mean, uh, we've all had tragedy, death, uh, whatever. That those who, who, who stick to the Lord and allow Him to take them through them find an intimacy with Him that most people don't. But we also understand the Bible talks about those that give up their life, that give up what they, they don't need, and they grab what they cannot afford to lose. There's an intimacy and a joy there that the Bible talks about that few nowadays know about, few as far as the masses go. And that's what we want. Father, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for the word. And Lord, but I, I thank you for the Lord of the word. It so eloquently points to who you are and your character. Father, I pray that if there are those listening that have not surrendered everything, intellect, pride, um, whatever to you, that they would do it. Because it, nobody needs to be taught. It's the Spirit that teaches us to abide in Christ. I pray that would be their lot, because what is it worth if man gains a whole world and that loses? What is a gain? If we have 20 more days left and we, we live it half-heartedly, I pray that we would... We would we would consider and accept nothing less than excellency. Nothing less than the Word of God operating in our life. Again, I thank you for this day, and I pray that you would go with us as we go, and give us joy that our joy might be full. Father, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.